Welcome everyone to Lo-Fi Lit. This is a podcast where I, Tyler Byrne, talk to poets and writers of the independent scene. You can listen to past episodes on Spotify, on Apple, on Google Podcasts. Is it called Google Podcasts? Google has a platform. I think it's Google Podcasts. Maybe it's GP Podcast. Or Gmail Pod. I don't know. Stitcher. All podcast platforms. You can listen to past episodes with Lucy K. Shaw. With Sebastian Castillo. With Carmen E. Brady. Took me a while. Sorry. I'm a little tired. Mary Boo Anderson, Theo Themo, all writers on this little independent niche scene we got going on from the internet. On today's episode, I talked to August Smith. He is a poet from Michigan and moved to Boston. All of this you will learn in due time. We've recorded a 90-minute episode. I thought it went very excellent. It's a little bit adhd as I'm ADHD, goes all over the place, but you're going to learn his journey. It's a complete, comprehensive podcast all about August Smith. Right now, he has just released a new online chat book that you can check out at augustsmith.net. You can also check out all of his other work, his like nine other chat books from Mario Kart poems to other titles that I don't have in front of me. As I'm speaking to you, he has been published in Peach Mag, in Iterant, and in Maudlin House, Omega, Coast, Ghost City Press, Summer Micro Chap Series, and Voicemail Poems, Partridge Lit, Spikeage Review number five, Witchcraft Magazine number five, Tenderness Lit, Peach Magazine. Bullshit Lit, and some other places. You can also check out his alien poems that he's been working on, and that is something that we talk about. So yeah, as I was saying, uh, please enjoy this episode. We get into it right off the bat. I asked him, right when he came on, I asked him, why do not have a book of poetry and we get into that conversation this episode after talking to him i kind of wanted to do a chat book will anyone read it probably not but it seemed like a fun idea to just like have a highly specific idea for a very strange thing and just like commit to it Something that something that you would just enjoy. You know, that reminds me of a style that uh, past guest Julian Neely has. Uh, she, I believe, like there's a, I took a, a course, a workshop uh, with Rochelle Tamirno called like Beauty School. She runs Peach Magazine. I think she's uh, about to get married. 
she was doing a bachelorette party. Anyways, we're in this these uh courses. They're excellent. And Julian Neely was one of the other course members. And I guess there's this running joke about Julian that she has all these ongoing projects. I mean, she has these finished projects and she just starts another one and then starts another one and starts another one. And like, she can't get like any books published because like no one's even like, no one will publish her, but she just like keeps doing these projects again and again and again because she's so good and she's so confident. And like that reminds me of like August Smith. So there are poets that do this. And as you can see, August Smith and Julian Neely are very successful at what they do. So why would they stop doing it? Oh, if I did not mention uh, August Smith, uh, he just released a new chapbook called Icelandic Poetry, where he translated uh, this Icelandic guy. Uh, you can check that out at augustsmith.net, as I've said previous times in this intro uh enjoy the episode i'll talk to you guys later bye i have a question why do you not have like a poetry book because you have like nine or twelve like chat books yeah, that's a good question. I, I often ask myself the same question. Here's why. It's because A, I like the chat book form a lot. And um I feel like I feel like I like um I just feel like it's the right length for me and was that way for a long time. B, I did write a whole book, which was my master's thesis. And I shopped it around to some publishers and nobody wanted it. And then I fell out of love with all of those poems. So I kind of just put that one in the proverbial um, desk drawer. And now I'm finishing up a different book. So that's a good question. I don't know. I should probably come up with a book, don't you think? I don't know. Have there been poets that have only existed through publishing of chat books? I'm sure there have. The only one... So uh, another person that I think of whose first book was just a collection of four chat books was uh, Samson Starkweather. <gasps> who, yeah. Yeah. You know who that is? Yeah. 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 He, he, uh, as far as I remember, that was his first book and it was just the four first four chat books that he published. So, but maybe he's had books out since then, full length books. I have no idea. Um, it's kind of cool to work exclusively in the chat book form. I'm also lazy and just bad about organizing myself and like bad about like sticking with projects. So chat book, it's much easier for me to like pull together like 20 or 30 poems, publish it, move on to the next thing. But when you're doing a full length, it's like uh, it, it stretches the limits of my brain. I think you said you were bad. You have like you like have like a thousand things that you put out. Like you have like yeah, I guess... musical albums. You have like you did a press you did like all this other shit <laughs> maybe i'm being self-deprecating i just feel like i don't i feel like my nature is like sort of all over the place and i lack focus and it it comes out in the form of all these disparate projects and i have never 
focused my energies and created the perfect little diamond crystal that is my first book yet but we're on the verge of that so you said you got tired of those poems does that happen with a lot of your work or just those poems i don't know that's a good question i think uh they just got kind of old and i read them a lot at readings over years uh all the books that made up that first kind of abandoned debut book I read on a tour I went on once and I read all throughout Boston and I read throughout the first couple of years of Austin. So at a certain point, it's like these poems are like seven years old now. You know what I mean? And it's mm -hmm. it, 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 that feels like a different August who wrote them. I would still be down with putting the book out uh, probably, but uh, my focus is now on other stuff, I guess. Do those poems like tell a story throughout the book or are no. they just like little moments in time? More the latter, I think they're more related to what was going on in my life at the time and like a specific style of writing that uh, I really used to uh, dwell in for a while. And it just feels like now I'm I'm on some other shit, you know, mm -hmm. recently there's been a lot of book length like poems. Have you ever thought of doing that? Yeah. What did I try to do? I had an idea. I kind of wanted to do a book length poem for my book length poem for my thesis i don't remember what my idea for that was yeah i'm intrigued by that idea i feel like um i don't know i feel like i don't enjoy those kinds of books as much as i enjoy uh more traditionally like uh traditional poetry books with discrete discrete poems i don't know uh it doesn't feel like Feels like something I'd want to do someday, but I, I feel like I need to put out a normal style poetry book eventually. Yeah. So, like, how did you get like into poetry? Oh, uh, um, I was uh, twenty uh, or maybe nineteen. Yeah, nineteen or twenty, and I took a creative writing class um, in college, my second year of college, I guess. And I'd always wanted to be a writer. Uh, even as a high school student, as a teenager, I was like trying to write things, but you know, just like total crap. Uh, but once I took a one creative writing course, I kind of got a gri grip on what poetry was. And I kind of got a sort of entry point into like contemporary poetry. And I was like, okay, this is like a thing that people do. There's like people who are out there doing this. There's people out there publishing books. So I start buying them. And then I very much remember my very first creative writing teacher, Elizabeth Hiscox, who's a great poet in her own right. I wonder what she's up to. She um, took me aside and she was like, you're my favorite poet in the class. And I was like, okay, this is all I'm going to do. This is my thing. I'm going to just keep going in this direction. So <laughs> kind of started from there. So how did you understand poetry back then? Like, what did it mean to you? before uh, before the entry point or at, no, like the at, entry point when you like you said you got it like what, what yeah did you get i guess i always had this inkling that there were i kind of understood that there were working poets there were people who were out there maybe not necessarily making a living doing it but there were people out there who were um you know uh contemporary poets uh but it's one thing to understand that and it's another thing to like find your way into it like i i never w went on like amazon and just started like buying books or something like i didn't understand like how to how to enter enter it um but once i 
I, uh, once I took a class and had to read a bunch of contemporary poets and there were just like a random assortment of poets, you know, whatever the teacher wanted us to read. I was like, oh, this is like, this can be this like very sort of um, exciting, abstract, modern, um, hilarious, flavorful, weird thing. Like, it's not just like, it's not just people writing like Robert Frost style stuff, right? You can like find people writing about things that are happening in my life or whatever. And so once I kind of learned that, it's it's kind of a stupid realization because of course there's people writing about what's going on in their own lives. But like when you're 19 and you're like kind of hunting for identity and you're like hunting for uh, maybe an art form or something like that, that was like a big realization to me to be like, oh shit, you can just kind of like do whatever you want with this. Like I could just go like write about like, you know, Twitter, or I can write about like the bad dates I went on or whatever. And and people, if you write it well enough and funny enough, people will actually want to read it. And so uh, I think, yeah, just understanding the modern contours of it was really important. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, okay. So like, when do you find the like online writing community, like on the internet through Twitter, Facebook? It was through Facebook. Media. It was through Facebook. I don't remember the exact thing that happened, but I befriended somebody. I was like hunting around on the internet, I was, like trying to find other people who were writing poetry or whatever. And I'm just like keeping my ear to the ground. And I met somebody through the internet um, who I don't really keep up with anymore, but we sometimes like each other's posts on various social media. Uh, their name uh, at the time was Neon Glittery. And they invited me into this uh facebook group this like alt lit facebook group this was like in 2000 let me think literally 2010 or 11. um so it was really small at the time um but that was like an entry point where i kind of learned started to learn about uh the online aspect and the sort of indie poetry scene and it kind of like blossomed out of there so i think Thank you to Neon Glitter for inviting me to a single Facebook group back then because that was very cool and very instructional for me. Do you remember the Facebook group? Yeah, it was Outlet Gossip, I think, which wow. was like the main outlet one um, way back when. I think it was that one. Um, but I wasn't, I wouldn't like participate very much, but I just like absorbed it. And then I, I was in Kalamazoo at the time, Kalamazoo, Michigan, which is where I went to undergrad. And um, we started hosting readings and it kind of started overlapping with the outlet thing and it became a much more like localized scene. And um, then I just, the ball was rolling. I had an audience. I had people who were interested in my work. I started figuring out how to print books. I made a press and it just kept rolling from there. So back then was like outlet a term that you recognized and like you wanted to get into or was it all new to you? Yeah, it was new to me at the point of getting into that Facebook group. But it's like one of those things where once you have a word for it, you're like, oh, okay, I kind of recognize like the sort of tenor of this, right? Like, all, I was like, okay, I get it. It's like this weird writing thing that people have been doing on the internet for the past couple of years on like social media and stuff. Um, you know, I think it was kind of like that where it was like, oh, now there's a word and there's like kind of a, a coalescing uh, group of people around this uh whatever you want to call it this like broader diy uh internet literature project and did like neon glittery know you from a reading that they had went to or no i don't remember how we met each other online i just think there was something weird in the air at that time i feel like people in facebook at that time were much more 
open to just like randomly chatting with each other. So I think probably we just started like chatting once and maybe there was some sort of like mutual literature connection or something. I would have to go back and look. Um, and it probably just started from there, but it feels crazy to think of that. I was just like chatting with random strangers on Facebook. Now that feels like a bygone era. Yeah. So who were some of the first like alt lit people that you really liked? Oh, let me tell you, let me tell you, I have a very vivid memory. I'm like a sophomore in college and I'm like starting to, like I said, I'm starting to perceive this like contemporary literature world, right? I'm like, okay, there's people writing novels, there's people writing books of poems. It's not just this thing in the past. It's this like living, breathing entity. I want in on this. And I remember I could probably go back and find the post if I still have my Reddit account. But I remember typing on Reddit and I was like, should I buy, let me quickly look it up. I think it was this book called Tom McCarthy, not Tom McCarthy. Uh, yeah, Tom McCarthy. Um, at the time I was like reading, okay. So at the time I was reading like NPR's like book blog and like they're like hyped books at the time. And there were two books that kept coming up in all of these like very mainstream uh, literature press areas. And one of them was this book by Tom McCarthy called C, which I've never read before, just the letter C. And the other one was the Tao Lin book, uh, Richard Yates, which was his second novel, I guess. And so I remember posting on Reddit and I said, <laughs> I don't know why, I don't know. I don't post on Reddit anymore. But at the time I posted and I was like, which of these books should I read? And everyone was like, fuck Tao Lin, that book sucks don't read it. And I was like, okay, that's the book I'm buying. This is the book that's making everybody mad. So I bought the Talon book and that, I mean, whatever, he's like canceled now, I suppose. Um, but at the time of all that, he was sort of like the demigod or whatever. And so that was one person that I, uh, that was like an entry point and sort of a, a overlapping point with a lot of these people on this Facebook group. Did so, ever... yeah. Did you ever read HTML Giant? Yeah, totally. I read HTML Giant. I have one uh, review published on there, and it is, uh, <laughs> to my great shame, to my great shame, it is a, a, a review of a Steve Rogenbach book who oh. has, uh, you know, been uh, completely obliterated for, via cancellation for very, very good reasons. So whatever, that's out there. But I was reading HTML Giant whatever that was also exciting to me when i was like 20 i was like everyone's like blogging and writing these like books and it's making people mad and i was like this is cool so definitely was my like the soup that i that was my origin when do you meet like uh evil mountain when i meet evil mountain so evil mountain aka eleanor eli moss uh we they were kind of a twitter entity to me for a really long time just one of those people I interacted with a lot on Twitter, occasionally DM'd maybe. And then when I moved to Austin, uh, I went to a party uh, within the first week and who wanders in but Evil Mountain and uh, immediately we hit it off. And then I got a, book at a, a job at a bookstore and they were working at the bookstore and we've been tight friends ever since. And they're coming over to drink beers on my porch this weekend. So the friendship continues. But... Um, they're one of my very good literature friends and one of the best like one of the people who have been writing and just kept their head down and writing through the altlet era all the way through till now and they're just always their their work always hits for me it's always, it's like the most special type of thing um yeah you, you know them too right 
I know of their their work. Mm-hmm. I used to interact with them on uh, Twitter, like back in like 2016, 2017, and then they left. Because I had, yeah. like I created like an alternate, like an alt account where I just interacted with alt with people. That's so cool. Too shame to like do it on my main Twitter, but then I left right. that account <laughs> and started interacting with people on my main Twitter account. Nice, nice. Yeah. That's good. That's a classic evolution. But yeah, Eleanor disappeared from the. It just doesn't you like i think they have a secret um twitter that they just kind of lurk with but they don't really feel interested as far as i know in being super active on social media and i think we can all understand that that's a normal impulse <laughs> so were you friends with rogan back uh friends hard to say i never i don't think i would consider i would have considered myself friends uh with them and i don't say that as some sort of like cover my ass thing that's just like out of pure honesty i don't think i was friends with them i read with them in kalamazoo and i had them read at my house in boston so i guess literary acquaintances um i don't know i never really felt close to them i didn't know them as a person uh but it was like a working relationship sort of thing i think you know so what was your first reading like that you set up at your house in Michigan. Wow. First reading. It was called. <laughs> my friend Marcus always references the title of this reading. Because I made a really fucked up poster for it. It was called. Wow. Let's get sad. And it was. Um, I can probably find the poster. It just had this like weird animatronic bear on it. Uh, looking at a kid who was eating some uh, burgers and fries or something. And um, what can I tell you about this reading? It was at my friend E.E.'s house, who is now a person who lives here in Austin. And um, I don't really remember who was on the lineup. I remember what it was my second reading I'd ever done, I think. And I remember standing up for the reading and everyone else had sit down for the reading. And I felt like that gave me an edge. (laughs) And I don't really remember much from it. There was a lot of drinking. This is like college era. So it was like poetry reading and like huge jugs of wine. And we're just getting like slammed and like doing like four hours of like open mic after the reading. It was like real. It was real interesting vibe. So was there a big scene in Michigan? Well, in Kalamazoo, my friend E.E. and I, uh, we kind of take credit uh for 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 at the time fostering like a nice little poetry scene in uh, uh in kalamazoo um you know ee e. hosted a reading maybe every month at their house we had a rotating cast of people and they started bringing in uh other writers from afar and uh, a little scene developed to the point where a local i just remember this a local news uh, organization like wrote a piece about the like burgeoning indie poetry scene in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Uh, so there was like a lot of energy around that at that time. I guess in Kalamazoo, there was a scene, I would say, for some time. It's so not there anymore. Did you ever consider like starting a magazine with your friends? Yes, I guess I, I guess I started a press at the very end of my time in Kalamazoo. So that's where that went. I've never had a really strong interest in starting a magazine or journal just because it feels like everybody else does it and that's not to say that's not like me throwing aspersions on it or whatever but uh it's just like everyone else does it better and there's a lot of venues out there already so i've never felt like i needed to start a magazine uh, unless i could think of some interesting angle for it uh yeah so when do you go from 
Michigan to Boston. So and after, like, you know, how, how much of a scene had you created and how much were you in the scene at that time? So like, I will, it was my fifth year in Kalamazoo. I had finished my undergraduate degree. I went and got accepted to an MFA program at UMass Boston, a three-year MFA program. So I just went there. Um, and at that time, I think EE had moved at that time. And, you know, in a college town, the turnover is so fast. So, you know, after a couple of years of that, of that scene being kind of thriving, the mainstays moved to Chicago and New York and whatever. And uh, it just kind of slowly dissolved, I think. Uh, and then I was in Boston and we continued doing house readings in Boston. Uh, we had a kind of a running, long running series at our house in Boston because I was living with uh, my girlfriend at the time and a, a another person who was in my program. And we were just like deep in the poetry world. And so, uh, yeah, so that we kind of continued that energy when we got to Boston and had a lot of fun house readings there too. So how many chapbooks had you created when you left Michigan to Boston? Let's see. I would have created one, uh, let's see, Upper Peninsula, I'm Having a Blast, Alien Drug. Uh, I think by the time I got to Boston, I had made three or four. Uh, yeah, let's just say three. And then they moved to Boston and four through seven came out or whatever. How much money did you make off those? And like, how did you continue being motivated to create more just because it was fun and the people, mm -hmm. the community and everything? Yeah, I didn't really make any money. I mean, I'm, I'm not very organiz organized. So like, it's not like I was managing, like when I ran a small press, cool skull press, I wasn't like, doing finance i mean that was just like my bank account you know so like i broke even on some books and some books i did not make any money on but i knew it wasn't about that i think probably the only one i ever profited off of was um the mario kart 64 poems because that just like sold really well it was just like an easy hook um dude that was so like a that was a huge hit i remember that <laughs> going around the internet at the time it was like all over uh entropy magazine yes yeah 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 they gave it like uh like one of the best chat books of the year award i was like yes that rocks so yeah, yeah I went to go was buy a... it it was like sold out already well i can send you the pdf i could probably I actually i was gonna say i could send you a copy but i literally think i have one copy and that's all that remains of it um but I never made a pro made profit. It was always about just the fun of it and just keeping me going and keeping the momentum up and keeping connecting with people. And it was just always a pleasure. I just get a lot of energy out of like the putting it out in the world process, right? So like I would ride the momentum of putting a chapbook into the world and getting attention from that into the next chapbook, which would then make me write it. And then I would ride the momentum of each one in, in this kind of, I've just kind of ride that momentum wave until I fell I off it. How do you get excited for the next chapbook from one to the other? Do you go into it like you're going to write different forms or you're going to like try to define a different style or subjects? Yeah, I think for a while I was really into the idea of like like projects, you know, like, OK, this next one is about Mario Kart. I'm going to write and like have the uh, like the sort of conceptual parameters that give you like. For the Mario Kart book, it's like write one poem for every course in Mario Kart 64. Okay, I got to write 16 poems. I sit down every day. I just start working on it. I just like focus on each one. And it just kind of gives you the the parameter, the structure and the parameters of it give you 
the um, take away the fear of the blank page, I guess you would say. And so that really helped for a while. Uh, and I think once I kind of fell out with writing these like more series based poems, I was just kind of just writing off of the momentum of specific ideas for poems, specific humorous things, voices, lines, that kind of thing. So I don't know, I guess, I guess I just try to stay as self-obsessed and uh, <laughs> excited enough for my next project to be like, this one is the next great thing I'm going to make. So really it allows you to experiment and be like just creative as hell as you want. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like setting up parameters for each, for each chat book. Uh, yeah. You just like gives you lines to color in. Like, it's really hard to just sit down and be like, time to write a poem about what I'm feeling. But if you're like, Oh, I'm like writing these poems thinking about X, Y, Z. And like, let's start with this like random line that I found in like a weird essay that I, about this subject or something. I don't know. It's just, it gives you that mm, place to um, stand on and uh, then is whatever. Any strategy that gets rid of like the blank page in front of you, I'm always going to be like, that's the strategy for me. I cannot, like the, the blank page is too scary. So what did you learn from like your very first one? My very first chat book? Yeah, what did you learn from it? Like, what did I learn from that? Okay, I learned A, that... Um, uh, it's really easy to make a print version. Like my first chapbook that I made, it was just a, like a website click through, you know, like nine poems or whatever. It took like all of my brain power for like a year and a half to write nine poems. And uh, when I did my first reading in um, Houghton, Michigan, my friend Steve was like, let's print this. Let's just like print a bunch of them. And I was like, but the readings this weekend, I don't think we have time. He's like, no, we can do this. And we just printed the book. And so I was like, Oh, you can just print the book. You can just print the book. It's so easy. You just got, you could just do it, just do the thing. And so, uh, I, I, I think I learned that not to trust my first intuition that something is going to be hard or that something is going to be complicated and just do it as best as you can. And people will enjoy it. And, that's probably what I learned from the first one. Also, not to be so serious in my poems. People like funnier things. People like lighter content. Ugh, content, gross. People like lighter uh, poems. Uh, I don't know. I, I just from my from my own personal abilities. Like I started to learn like which poems were a bit too self serious and a bit too mopey, and which poems had like a nice bitter humorous edge that I could uh, exploit for my for my poems. So that was probably what I learned. Yeah. So why don't you self-publish a book of your own then? That's a great question. I could. I should. I think I think maybe maybe when you do a full book, it's like I don't know, self-publishing. It's like a blessing and a curse, right? You get like full control over it. You can make the cover, you can do it exactly as you want it, but you don't really have the institutional support of a press behind you so i feel like if i wanted my book to come out i'd like to put it out through sort of quote-unquote legitimate means uh just because i put the effort into it and i want the institutional help behind it if possible but i could and i still might do you know maybe i'll self-publish that first book just to get the poems into the world do you um, think it's because I, you don't know the processes of it so you're more comfortable doing chat books Maybe, maybe that's it. I, I guess, 
I just like the chat book form a lot. Yeah. There's just something about the length of it that feels right, you know? Maybe I just have, like, ADD brain or something, and I can't, like, focus for a whole book, but there's something about the form of it that is really attractive to me. And But I'll get... I'll get also, I'm in no rush to come out with my first book. Yeah. You know, some people are, like, cranking them out when they're, like, 26 or whatever. It's like, if my first book comes out before I'm 35, that's great. That'd be great. So how do you, how do you print the first chat book? You just, like, print it out through a printer? That one was just printed out through a printer. Like I said, my friend Steve, who's one of my very close friends, he just printed it out and printed out the cover on some bigger cardstock. And then he just hand threaded it. I wonder if I have a copy here. Um, and then I started doing that with my, uh, the next few were all sort of hand published that way, hand bound and that kind of thing. Cause I really just enjoyed the process of selling books through Tumblr and making the binding myself and, you know, doing the folding and doing the tying and stuff. So I was doing that. And then eventually I was, I wanted to up the quality a bit. I wanted to up the, up the, the tactile quality. And so I yeah. just started using these like on-demand printers. 48 hour books is the one I've used a lot. They are based out of Ohio and they just like send them the files and they print the book and it looks beautiful. And you know, you just, whatever you pirate, adobe indesign and you just kind of learn it and it's just like all those little parts i love i love just the process of designing the book and i love the process of picking up paperweight and making i love making a table of contents it's just maybe that's why i've never come up with a book because when you come up with a full-length book through a publisher you don't get to pick the cover art you don't get to pick the you don't get to make the table of content. You don't get to pick the typeface. You know, I like those parts too. So when I get to make my own chat books, I get to make every single decision. Maybe I'm a control freak. I, I don't know. I haven't interrogated it. Have you thought of using Amazon's like self-publishing service like Shabby Dollhouse did? I have thought about it, uh, but I've just never really looked into it. It's like, I guess it'd be kind of cool because I feel like they give you an ISBN and you have an Amazon page and people feel comfortable ordering things from Amazon and... Maybe it's cool. I think I've ordered a few books and this is not to put any shame on anyone. I mean, obviously Amazon is like not a wonderful company and it would be best to avoid them at all costs, but this is not to put shame on anyone who's used those self-publishing services. You got to do what you got to do. I feel like I've ordered some of books through Amazon self-publishing and the quality really ranges from good to bad and sometimes maybe that's the fault of the person publishing it maybe that's the fault of amazon but that's just my impression of that yeah so what like what chat books have you read by other people that you loved and you like were inspired by wow what chat books have i read by other people that i love and by okay so i'm really bad about questions like this where people are like what's a what's a book you read because i just like can't store information that well i have a nice stack of chat books that i'm looking at right now um but uh, I just, I don't, I don't know. There's just, I don't know. So many chapbooks. Um, I think, let me think for a second. I think, you know, I really just think of books that my friends have made, chapbooks that have my friends have made. You know who I really liked? You know what book I really liked? Let me see if I can look it up really quick. Um, who published this? Uh Dan Majors published this chapbook that I loved a long time ago. Um, whatever. I'm like Googling things now. It's probably very impolite for an interviewer, but um, I don't remember audio. who published it. I, okay. That's cool. Nobody can see me. Um, I can't, I don't know. I just, I, I've read so many chapbooks. Nothing can come to mind right now. 
What about presses <laughs> that you love or that have wow. like gone defunct? Yeah, Mud Luscious. Do you remember Mud Luscious? I do that not. was like an old one. Mud Luscious Press. I um, that was like an early one that I discovered that I really loved. They came out with one of the first books of contemporary poetry that I bought was called, uh, I think it was by Mateus Svalina, and it was called I Am a Very Successful Entrepreneur. And cool book, really cool book. And um, I gave it to someone and I lost it. So that sucks. Another press that I, was really big for me early on was uh, Pank Magazine. Um, they've kind oh, yeah. of changed hands. Yes, yes, yes. Back then, I mean, that is based in Upper Michigan where I'm from. Oh. So that was like a major literary, I mean, major in the indie scene, whatever, a literary institution uh, that was like two hours from my hometown. So that felt really exciting. Uh, my very first reading was with M. Siegel, who used to run that. I think he sold the magazine. I think it's, I don't know who owns it now. It seems like it's been kind of in limbo for years, but they used to publish really cool books. They published this book called, um, by Brian Oliu called, oh, what is that called? I'm having a lot of brain issues right now. Oliu uh, Pank Magazine. Let me see if I can find it. Did you see the controversy surrounding Pank a few, I think like a year ago, or a few months ago? Oh. Yes. Okay. I think it was bought by the the people who are like weird grifters or something, right? Yeah. And yeah. They like won't respond to anyone, and no one knows what's going on. And they're and like harvesting just... like money through like submission fees and doing nothing with it. Or, yeah. Like, not not publishing anyone. Yeah, that's a real bummer. Um, I wish I remembered the exact contours of that. Somebody wrote a really nice like oh, medium yeah. article, just kind of like blowing that up, and it's like, oh my god, it's. It takes like a special piece of shit to like exploit writers that way. So, so explicitly, I don't know. That is pretty insane, but descriptors everywhere. Like, any of your favorite pieces from Pank? Cause I remember reading that and I bought, I bought a few when it was like going, like Roxanne Gay was leaving and it was like doing a going away sale. And I bought a bunch of the magazines and it was like really high quality. And I just remember reading through it and kind of getting. I got like an idea for like what Roxanne Gay's edit like editorial style is. So like uh -huh. anytime now she puts out a book that's like a collection of people, I will buy it because I know it's going to be like entertaining and sort of experimental. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think I can't think of like a specific piece, but like I remember buying whatever Pink Magazine issue was current at the time when I did this in 2010 or whatever, and. Yeah, I remember being really taken in by the forms. I remember being really taken in that they took a lot of care to present the poems in a beautiful way in that book. It was very thick book, thick pages, bit, it was square shaped. Um, so it, it left a room for poets to go all over the page. Um, and I remember that book that Brian Oliu did through Pank Magazine called uh, So You Know It's Me. And it was based off of um, um, Craigslist Missing Connection, um, oh, wow. you know, it was like poems based off of like missing connection posts. Uh, so that is like one of those early buys for me where I was like, oh, you can just like develop poems out of these like weird little elements of the internet that you find moving or something. And that book kicks ass and I don't know where my copy went. Again, I lose, lose a lot of these early books. So how was your MFA experience in Boston? I loved it. I had a great time. You know, a lot of people have mixed things happen in their MFA, but uh, mine was like a three-year program, which was cool. And there was no sense of like competition. It was like a very hard, we had a very harmonious cohort. We all really liked each other, very different kinds of work. 
uh, there was no there was no real issues there. I still keep up with a few of them uh, pretty closely, and yeah, I mean, whatever. It just gives you like three years to like be a poet and write and like be in the university world and like take advantage of all of that has to offer and get taken seriously by poets who are really serious. Like the, my my teachers were Jill McDonough, who's a really great poet, and Lloyd Schwartz, who's an amazing poet as well. Uh, and and uh, he won the Pulitzer Prize for music journalism or something like that. So real serious people. And um, it's cool to be taken seriously by those people, especially when you're like 25. <laughs> you know, it's kind of nice. So when you went in there and like you're kind of in the internet uh, communities, is anyone like pushing you to like strive to get out of that? Or like, do they look down on you? They didn't think you were serious? As in, like, the people in the MFA, like, the the faculty and stuff? yeah. No, they were really open-minded about it. They kind of found those elements of my practice interesting, I think. Uh, uh, You know, at the time, I was, like, trying to do, like, digital poetics and internet poetry. I was, like, really interested in questions about that. Not so interested in that anymore, just by dint of, like, I studied it too much. But they were interested in me taking an academic approach to studying this kind of stuff. So no, they were all supportive of it. I, I do remember my press, my professor being like, "You got to stop being published in these like weird websites that go defunct after two years and need to start like uh, submitting to bigger magazines." And that's never been my philosophy. I don't really care to get into like poetry. I mean, it'd be cool, but I don't really care to try that hard. So that was an interesting little point of conflict. She was like, "Yeah, you got to stop. You got to like up your submitting game," but. As uh, just like whatever, I like to just like get my thing on a blog that I can post. It's a different style. But did they have any concerns about the actual writing itself? They like no. told you to like, oh, you should write this way to get into these magazines. No, no, no. I don't think so. I mean, if I wrote a stinker, they would tell me I wrote a stinker, right? And that's kind of part of being an MFA, you know, doing the workshop thing. But at that time, I like. I feel like by the time I was in my MFA, especially by my third year when I was working on a lot of poems for uh, the full-length thesis, I um, I'd sort of shed a lot of the bad um, craft practices that I maybe picked up during the alt-lit stuff, and I started to take my craft um, much more seriously. And uh, I, I think my poems increased in density over my MFA time. There were less novelty poems. There were less joke poems. There were more funny poems that were trying to engage with bigger things. So... I think they encouraged my development, but I don't think they were ever like, stop writing about, you know, whatever, Twitter or something. They kind of found it interesting. So I remember I have a very distinct memory of using the word blog as a verb in one of my poems and Jill McDonough being like, this doesn't make any sense to me. Blog is a noun. So, you know, like weird little like so conflict are, points. So what were some bad craft practices that you dropped? Just, um, uh, I feel like there was this like element to alt lit where it was like, so you, this is lo-fi lit, right? Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's something about a lot of alt lit writing and a lot of the alt, uh, internet poetry writing that was like craft agnostic or like rejection of craft to the point where it was just like line, stanza break, line, stanza break, line, stanza break, whatever which is fine. The rejection of craft is itself a craft choice. I get that. Or like rejection of form is itself a form. But um, 
it's just less interesting. It's less ambitious than actually trying to figure out interesting things you can do with line breaks, interesting things you can do with like sound and rhythm and meter, uh, controlling the speed of the reader, controlling the uh, the way that they get through the poem. And so I think maybe not that I abandoned bad practices, like I said, but it's more like I started thinking more deeply about these questions and it made my poems so much stronger. Like when I started like scanning my poems and trying to get them into more regular meter, like it just blasts your poems off into space. It makes them so powerful. And it, whatever, all it was supposed to be like lo-fi is kind of punk, it was kind of DIY. It was like, let me see if I can write a hundred poems in 10 days or whatever style stuff. And that has merit. Uh, but not really what I'm interested in, I guess. So what forms did you really take to when you were at your MFA? And was it hard to like make that transition? Were you um, like really like grabbing on to those old bad craft techniques? I don't know. I, I mean, I, it's not like I was like super juiced by like traditional forms. Like it was cool to be for like my teachers would force us to write a sonnet or they'd make us write a villanelle. And it's cool to like do those um, to sharpen your blade, so to speak. But there wasn't like a particular form that I was drawn to. It was more like considering deeply uh, how form affects meaning. Like that is like what the MFA uh, helped teach me. And I think especially Jill McDonough, really, really powerful form master. She, she writes a lot of uh, sonnets and um it kind of transitioned me from being like that's not for me i'm like an internet poet i'm like writing like th this kind of like punky stuff to being like oh no like it's actually interesting to engage with uh, these traditional forms and these practices uh or invent your own forms right yeah so what writers did you take to when you're in your mfa like reading and like what courses did you like taking uh i like one of my favorite writers is matthew rohrer uh he's he's been a sort of guiding light for my own poetry um and he blurbed one of my chat books what a guy what a cool guy um so i've always liked his books a lot i've liked a lot of the things that came out of wave uh wave poet wave books wave poetry i don't know what it's mm -hmm. called wave books and um, I really liked Tomaj Shalamoon. Somebody who I studied under at UMass Boston is somebody who studied under Tomaj Shalamoon. So I kind of got turned on to him and he's been like a lifelong favorite of mine. Um, what was the other question? Uh, I'm not sure. I don't remember. I don't remember either. I'm sorry. I was just like trying to like page through my like bookshelf in my head or whatever. Um, yeah, I don't know. So what happened with your, uh, your your thesis, I guess? It's just like sitting there, man. I like, I it's done. I don't know, it's like 65 pages or somebody, something like that. Uh, but I don't know, just like stop submitting it to places. I don't know, you get like 30 rejections and you're like, I hate yeah. this book. This book actually sucks. Even though there's some poems that I really like in there. And I just feel so distant. It's like, all that shit was written in like 2017. It's like, really, can I publish that now? I'm. It's so far in the rear view mirror. It would be so weird to put the put them into the world. But maybe that's not a good reason. I haven't really decided what to do with all that. Have you I taken guess. some poems out and like used them in shop books or magazines? 
I started to do that. I there's a long poem in there about shopping malls. It's like 15 pages long, and I've started trying to get that published because I toured that selection for a while and people loved it and like I've had people asking me about them over the years like where are those shopping mall poems so it's like I should probably just self-publish the whole book um but I really want to finish this UFO book before I do anything with that stuff like I need to ride the wave of this and finish this project before I start thinking about old poems I guess so how'd you move from Boston to Austin yeah, so I start. I finished my MFA in 2017, and then I was like, if I don't leave Boston right now, I'm probably never going to leave. I'm going to be stuck here. I'm going to like start a new life after my MFA. You know, I'm going to like whatever, be in a relationship, and then get a job, and then I'll be stuck in Boston. And I really felt like, how many times do you have this opportunity in your life to like start fresh, start anew? Uh, was kind of my thought. And I had like a, a, a long-term relationship come to the end around that time. And so it just felt like the right thing to just move. And so my two options were Austin, Texas, where I knew my friend E.E. and some other people who were like, yeah, come move here. And my other option, I was going to go like teach English in Russia. I was like, I want to do this. And I was like really almost about to do that. And then... I don't remember what happened in 2017, but weird shit went down with Russia as it continues to do. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll move to Austin. So I moved to Austin having never been here before. It was like sight unseen. Like when I drove in with my U-Haul, it was like the first time I was ever in Austin. I was like, what the hell am I doing? But it's worked out. Do you like the scene down there? Yeah, it's okay. I I was much more engaged in the literary scene pre-COVID. It feels like after COVID, a lot of the... Um, outlets that i was a part of kind of dried up and haven't really resuscitated unfortunately um there's still a lot of cool art stuff that happens here that i've participated in but as far as and like even in a literary capacity i've participated in but as far as like a literary scene um not really much it's like there probably is like slam stuff happening or something i don't really know about that i know there's this thing that's like burlesque poetry like kind of i don't know not really my vibe frankly and so i guess the scene is kind of non-existent i would like there to be more readings here we had a reading last year that was massive hit so i guess there's probably hunger for it but it hasn't re reconstituted itself since covid for better What's or worse burlesque poetry i don't know if that's the word burlesque but maybe it's not Boudoir. I don't really know. It's like here's my impression of it. It's like people who are dressing up really sexy in like sexy outfits, and there's like a literary component. And it's like I don't really get it. It I, I it feels kind of like the literary component is secondary to the like dressing sexy part, which is whatever. That's totally fine. Combine the two, it's cool. But it's just like I don't really get that vibe. Yeah, there was someone in like like brooklyn or new york that like was really gung-ho on doing those like every, yeah like month what is that i forgot i forgot what it was it was called it's called like red light poetry or something here i, I really don't know that much about it and i don't want to sound like i'm denigrating it <laughs> but it's like I, I yeah i just like don't i'm not going to dress sexy to present my poems my poems aren't particularly sexy yeah. 
I guess they could. The alien ones could be. I mean, you're there's a sex. Know. Yeah, there's a sexy alien poem. I Maybe read that like one. Alien burlesque or something. <laughs> that could be pretty good. That could. That could be. I mean, I feel like there's so many ingredients in the pot. You know, it's like already like UFO aliens and poetry stuff in the pot. That's like two really strong ingredients. You throw like me being sexy in it and it's maybe that's the gumbo is getting too loaded i don't know like a sexy alien like wear like an alien costume and then yeah. like lingerie over the yes. alien costume yeah okay i can kind of see that maybe yeah you like paint your skin all gray and uh like a cheap costume yeah, like the yeah. thing ever. <laughs> yeah, it just looks like shit. Yeah. Yeah, maybe that maybe that maybe that should be my re-entry point into the local scene. I don't know. Have you thought about doing workshops? Like organizing them? A little like, bit, but I don't know. I feel like I was just I feel like like there's this like classic evolution evolution of like as you get more serious about your poetry and as you get an audience, you like start doing workshops. And I don't know. I guess I just have like no interest in participating workshops anymore. I did that for three years in MFA. I have no real interest in leading workshops. It's just like not on my radar at all. I I I, I might maybe one day, but I've never I've never felt like I needed to do that. I don't know. What about like a workshop that like detail the process of putting out a chapbook that would be cool you know i that's smart i like that approach um i like that thought i on youtube i have a video from 2016 or 15 it's like called how to design your poetry chapbook in indesign part one and i never made a part two but it's my most popular uh, video on my YouTube channel. And sometimes I get like random emails from people who are like, hey, just wanted to say this was really helpful for me. Thank you for making this video. When's part two coming out? It's like eight years ago. So maybe I should do that. I do like the process of making chat books and designing them. And I guess people are looking for that kind of stuff because it was it's got a couple thousand views on YouTube. In 2017, isn't that when the Rogan Buck news dropped? Say yes, probably 2017 or maybe early 2018. I feel like there were a lot of poets that kind of like disappeared. Yeah. That news dropped. Totally. So I'm kind of trying to conceptualize this a lot lately because um, I might, spoiler warning, I might start a podcast soon with some of my friends talking about literature. Nice. Um, but uh, I would love to do like an oral history of alt lit just because it feels like it'd be nice. It'd be a fun project or something. But I feel like the alt lit imploded or died in like three spurts. There were like three specific big exp- implosions, of, you know, major uh, like figureheads getting canceled um, for disgusting reasons. And yeah, a lot of those people just disappeared. And a lot of people were really hurt by what went down and a lot of people's trust was violated and makes sense. But I mean, after, okay, I will say this after the Steve Rogan book thing happened in 2017, I don't think I, I was really bitter about poetry for like a year and a half afterwards. I did. I hated it. I did not want to write another book. I did not want to write another poem. It was only when I really started connecting with Eleanor on poetry and my friend, Matt Klauser. And we started meeting every couple of weeks reading each other our poems and like kind of just felt like starting fresh and my passion kind of slowly came back uh that 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 was reversed but i felt really bitter so of course a lot of people probably just were like 
screw this. So it was through like collaboration that sparked uh, your creative interest back into poetry. Yeah, and, like, and more. Yeah, you ahead. could see maybe someone who didn't have a community around to collaborate with that they would maybe just stay out of poetry. Of course. Yeah. Of course, especially if they're looking up to this figure or looking up to some poet and then it's just like the most horrible things come out and you're like why the, like you feel stupid, you feel used, you feel manipulated. So, I mean, that's how I felt. And so um and it was more than just collaboration, but it was like in person sitting around drinking wine with my with my friends and like just like talking about books. Like there's something specific about it being like in-person casual it wasn't and collaborative we did do readings together eventually we did a really great reading together us three but um it was very much just like back to basics baby back to basics so what were the three implosions that you were saying about well, i don't know if it's exactly three that's kind of how i remember it happening but i remember there was the this first wave where a bunch of the figureheads like stephen tully dirks and um that's just one name that comes to my head but it's like a first wave of like three or four people kind of got you know like canceled and like a bunch of these like venues closed and it was just like a sort of re re revelatory moment and then there was like another wave maybe when Tao Lin was canceled and then the third wave was when Steve Rogenbach was canceled and it was like these three successive explosions that just completely cratered all of the DIY work and all of the, you know, just like nobody wanted to even talk or think about it anymore. I feel like the Roganbuck thing was kind of like, you know, like in Marvel movies with Thanos and like he did the snap the fingers and there was like a five year blip. It kind of feels yeah. like that because I see a lot more poets now coming back out. Yes. It's amazing how that, some something like that can just shake up the whole scene i guess it just shows the fragility of those things like you're you're building all of these um uh you're building all of these uh, venues uh, you know online venues for writing and you're building all of these practices and these social circles and then boom they just the bottom falls out and it collapses and you know everyone kind of scatters into their own corners yeah, i feel like a, weird. like a death or like a major fallout like stops people from creating and like collaborating creates more creativity totally totally and it's i feel like people just get embittered by by those kind of collapses and how do you counteract that i don't know i guess you know i'm sure everyone has got prescriptive things that they can do to make the scene more safe and that kind of thing but i have no I, that's beyond my pay grade so i don't know it do was kind know, of dark though yeah do you know uh, orchid Kajini? Yes, of course. A close friend here in Austin. Uh, I, I haven't seen them for a minute. I've seen them for a minute, but a uh, close friend for sure. Are you guys going to... Who, who are you going to podcast with? Um, Eleanor and um, I, I kind of... Uh, we'll see if this actually happens. We're supposed to record the first episode this weekend. Eleanor and my uh, friend Marcus Corey, who is like a person I've known since... Um, like kindergarten you know uh and he's kind of been uh with me on the periphery of all this literary stuff so um hopefully uh, we're recording this weekend if the episode is cool we'll put it out if not we'll never speak of it again why you could do it uh, try another one then 
well, it's hard enough to wrangle these two into the first episode. I feel like if it doesn't work, they'll be like, fuck this idea. Well, if you do just one episode, you go to like three hours. Because then if you never do another one, then it's enough content. That's true. That's true. It'll be like the, the podcast that never was. But I have confidence in this project idea. I've always wanted to do a podcast. And it's like, what the hell? Why not? Right? Like, How'd the just, idea come about? Um, uh, it's like four months ago, my friend Marcus was telling me that, jokingly telling me that it was toxic, that I didn't have a podcast because he wanted a place to talk about Napoleon. And I was like, maybe I do need a podcast, not about Napoleon, but a podcast. And then I got an idea for the podcast, which I'm not going to reveal here because I don't want anyone to steal it if if it takes longer to make. But um, then I got a kind of a good idea for the podcast, kind of a good hook. And I wrote out like 50 episode ideas. There and now I'm just like wrangling and like, I'm like, let's give it a shot. Let's give it a college try. Yeah, that's a great idea. You've been slamming these podcasts. I, I was like catching up um, on, on on Spotify. I was like looking at, and and listening to some past episodes. And I was like, damn, you've been killing it at this, at the, at the casting game lately, huh? Well, thank you. Yeah, I try to get one like once a month. That's pretty good. It's like once a week is impossible. There's no way I could get once a week. Yeah, that's like a full-time job if you were doing it like once a week. Yeah. Do you mind if we keep going? It's almost been an hour. No, I don't care. Let's do it. I'm having a great time. Okay. So how do you go? So you're in Austin. When when, when does the uh, UFO poem project begin? That started in, uh, let's see, 2000. I think I had the idea in 2021 and it was like an idea that I sat on before I wrote anything. I think I sat on this idea for like almost a year. Um, It's possible that I even had this idea in 2020, but I was like, I should write poems about UFOs. And then I just like didn't do it. And it's interesting now that I think about it, the difficulty was that I couldn't find a way in, right? Like it was just like contemporary literature where I was like, I want to be into that, but I can't find my way in UFO stuff. It's like, I wanted to be into it, but I just like couldn't, crack the shell it is like watching random documentaries and i was like reading things online but i just like, couldn't find like the, the the meat that i was really interested in so it took a long time to like find my way into that subject but then once i did i like just started cranking them out and then i became obsessed with the subject and now i'm just like weird ufo guy to some people and that's cool that's fine like, with me how much information do you have to know on a subject before you start writing poems about it I just feel like you gotta have a level, uh, like, like, for me to feel confident, I feel like I I need to have a lot of information about it. Like, I want to feel like I understand. If I it, maybe not a totally full understanding, I want to at least understand the scope of the field, right? Like, like I want to know. I'm reading the good stuff basically because especially with something like ufos there's a lot of nonsense out there there's a lot of stuff that's um uh maybe not helpful or downright uh the opposite of helpful so i wanted to make sure i was like approaching it correctly before i started writing about it i guess so do you read like academic papers yeah some yeah there's some really interesting academic papers about it there are a lot of ufologists who take a very academic approach who I enjoy, like Jacques Vallée, um, and, uh, and and then I just also really enjoy finding people in real life and hearing their stories, or um, uh, finding just like really really obscure things online. Like 
I found this really weird, like Polish, Polish UFO encounter website. And it's like all this stuff that you can't find anywhere in English and you have to use Google translate to read through, but just full of unbelievably cool stories. And so I like finding those sort of niche aspects too. So who do you know in real life that does have like an encounter? Uh, you know, a lot of people actually, it's kind of funny when I uh, tell people I'm writing these poems, uh, you know, and if this has been the, really the pleasure of the UFO poem project for me is saying to people, I'm working on a book about UFOs. It's a book of poems. And I'd say like one in 20 people will go, Oh, uh, I've had an experience. I've seen a UFO or they'll say like my grandpa or my uncle has seen a UFO. Like, it seems like roughly like 5% of people has, have had some sort of experience or they know someone who has. And, you know, once you can, once someone says that, it's just like, give me the details. Let me hear it. And I've heard so many stories from people who are just like, oh yeah, me and my friend, we were out in a field and this like crazy shape, like flew around above us for a while. Or my uncle was on the shore of Lake Superior and saw these like three green orbs and they were like dancing in this ridiculous way. And so, yeah, a big pleasure of this has just been hearing people's stories and like seeing how excited they get to talk about the subject. So going through this, have you did you have a belief in ufos or did you ever not believe or did your I, belief I, be confirmed yeah i think if you'd asked me three to five years three to 30 years ago i would just be like yeah sure like I, I believe in that like why not it's much more interesting to at least like be like that probably happens and now that i've read a bunch of things about it and you know really kind of grokked the entirety or like a, a big portion of like the existing literature of it. Um, I'm like, oh my God, this subject is like, actually, I don't understand why everybody is not obsessed with this. Like this is the most interesting shit ever. Like why is everyone not always talking about this? But that's just the nature of like obsession and conspiracy theory, I guess. Have you been watching the trials that are like going on right now? A little bit, a little bit. I'm at least keeping on top of them. I don't really trust this whistleblower fellow. Um, gorsh or whatever his name is i forget his name he um i don't know man he glows i, I don't really trust that he, he he seems too too dipped in the intelligence agency stuff and he's not really presenting anything like there was already a whistleblower like a few years ago who kind of said all of the same things so the fact that this is being presented under oath in front of congress and he's naming names that's interesting but everything else i'm like i don't know i don't know it, 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 it something about it stinks to me so I am following it with some trepidation, I guess. So what's the research or the most consistent mm, sighting that you've read about or heard what about? Do you, what do you mean? Like which specific sighting? Like yeah. one, one specific instance? What's like the most, like I guess, tangible, the most credible to you? Oh, wow. The most credible. I think the most credible ones, I think, are the ones that have multiple independent witnesses, right? Like multiple people in an area see the same object. These people don't know each other. They don't communicate about it. But researchers like find that multiple people have viewed them. So I think there's a few in my book that talk about those kinds of uh, encounters. And I find those pretty credible just because how do you explain that right like multiple people 
same, same thing. It must have been there. It must have been there. So, but uh, maybe I would answer this in a sideways way by saying, like, I'm not really thinking about credibility when I'm reading these story encounters. I'm kind mm -hmm. of more thinking about how, like, what's interesting about the story. What is like the insight I can like absorb out of this story, and uh, what does this story say about the person telling it? Like, what are the interesting language moments? What are the interesting like, like, it's a, st a story is a story. It's like fine. Like, I don't really care if it's true or false at the end of the day. It's like I'm interested in the story itself and the images that it conjures in your head and the insight that you can pull out of it. And so I'm not even looking for the most credible stories. Actually, some of the UFO encounters that I've written about in this series of poems are not credible. <laughs> like there's a few of them that are like basically proven to have not happened, but it's beyond the point for me, I guess. So then why does it matter, I guess, if you're not worried about credibility, like why do so much research into it then? Because A, the research is interesting, and B, I don't want to pretend, I don't want to present, I feel like when I'm publishing the poems, I'm like, this is a certain part of me that's like presenting myself as some sort of authority on the subject, just by, just by dint of publishing the poems. And if I'm going to present myself as an authority, I do want to have some sort of authoritative grasp on the subject, or at least an understanding of where my blind spots are. So... It's interesting though that your the research into the UFO you kind of treat it as if like you're gonna write some like nonfiction book but you're just taking it from a fun interesting perspective. I really yeah. Do you have like a journal where you like write down notes because I feel like you could publish like you could publish like everything that you research into like a nonfiction book or something. Honestly, I probably should be taking better notes. Like in the end of the day, like my notes just become the poems. I think, but. And I would like to publish more nonfiction stuff, but I guess part of the animating force behind the UFO project is that like, I think poems themselves are like a really interesting way to talk about like paranormal stuff. I, I think I'm learning like poems have this like weird relationship with truth, right? Like poems are kind of both true and not true at the same. Like you don't read a poem and you're like, this is fact, is this fiction or nonfiction? It's like poems exist like outside of fiction and nonfiction. We don't divide poems into fiction and nonfiction. It's just like outside of the realm of verifiable reality truth because it creates its own truth. And I think that is kind of an interesting aspect that links up nicely with paranormal, specifically UFO stuff. It's like the stuff can't be true. People experience it and claim that it is true. It kind of exists outside of our realm of what we consider possible. So maybe poems are the best way to deal with this. Like maybe there's a literary quality to these experiences. Maybe people are like living through these like poetic transcendent experiences with UFOs. And the only way we can actually talk about them is through the medium of poetry, which also exists outside of truth. That's kind of the big thesis, I guess. So maybe you're creating like little spectacles of entertainment through the poetry. Yes, yes. And and you're creating you're creating meaning. Poetry makes its own truth. It really does, I think like a poem has its own sort of like gravitational field it kind of like bends reality around it i think it, it, if you'll allow me to get like really kind of highfalutin and abstract about it um and so the more i read about ufos the more i i see this like breathing relationship between uh things that exceed not only like scientific logical analysis but also exceeds spiritual analysis like that is the realm of poems like that liminal space and so i see a great overlap between those two 
did you learn this through your research through and like writing these poems or did you already have that idea before uh totally learned this through like this is where i've landed after writing the book like um i think when i first had the idea for this collection i was just like this could be cool let's write like you know let's write about spaceships and now i've like understood the interest like that the the, the actual meat of it is where the, the where i've landed so what was with the polish website what was the most interesting stories you've heard from there and like did they like corroborate with anything that you've heard from over here i think the most interesting story and it's one that i used for one of my favorite poems in the collection was this guy um in the 80s he was duck hunting and he was out by a lake and he had his gun and he had his dog with him and he's been to by this lake many many times it's a place where he's gone duck hunting many times and his dog runs off into the night something that his dog has never done before either terrified or chasing something he's like what the hell is going on so he kind of uh, tries to find his dog he's looking around and he gets to um he gets to this part of the lake and he sees this like sphere and the sphere is like dipped in the lake and the water is boiling around the sphere and he's like what the hell and then these two ghostly foil bag figures come out of the darkness and they uh his gun uh gets really hot and he drops it and then these two foil creatures they lift him up in the air and they blast him with this sheet of blue light and as the sheet of blue light is passing through his whole body he's like has this transcendent experience he's like all of his memories are just flooding into his brain he gets like really sexually aroused he's like he just has this like totally like brain bending it's like philip k dick valis experience and uh and i just thought it was cool <laughs> because it's so it's just like a classic ufo story but um the guy's account of it was really interesting and so that's the first one that comes to mind that came from that polish ufo website and also there were a lot of really good drawings on it too that's so cinematic like if that yeah. had, like someone actually went through that i don't know i could even like explain it right it's unexplainable way. and it's yeah. like why do like like i don't know there's so many questions that these things bring up that are unanswerable and i that's why people get obsessed with it i guess so can i ask you some names that i wrote down and see yeah. if you have any stories about them i'm scared yeah let's do it all right let me find it mm -hmm. oh carmony brady Carmen E. Brady. I've never met her. Really like her. She's someone that I've just known through Twitter for a really long time. I don't think I have any stories. I love her drawings. I think she seems I want to like eat every cake that she seems to make. Um big fan. Shout out. Shout out. What about Lucy K. Shaw and the Shabby Dollhouse? I don't know them very well. I I, I think they did they pop is that like witchcraft mag or is that like a different thing? That's a different but very close legally related that's el nash yeah. witchcraft that's what el nash oh el nash okay yeah i don't really know lucy k shaw um i don't think we've really ever crossed paths maybe they know who i am i know who they are i can't think of any instance about them but also shout out hi lucy <laughs> what about uh like metrotron yes uh like the the canadian publisher mm -hmm. ashley obscura yeah she came in red she and um i think it's yeah jay ritchie another uh 
associate of that press. They came and read at my house in Boston. Um, and that was one of my favorite readings. You know, they were coming through and they have they would have this interesting thing where like the Canadian government, or maybe it's specifically like Montreal or Quebec or whatever, um, funds pu publishers pretty well, or like there's just more money in the arts up there, I guess. And so they had to do X amount of readings in the United States for them to like get some money for doing international po poetry work or something. So they came through to Boston as part of some sort of tour they're on or something. And we had a great reading. Uh, and I really liked Ashley and Jay. I think we all hit it off really well. And I also met Ashley, I don't know if this is before or after the reading, but one time I was in Montreal and we went and got coffee. I was in Montreal in January. It was like cold as shit up there. And she took time out of her day to get coffee with me and it was really pleasant. So I've always liked that person quite a bit. Uh, they've also published me on their website a few times and um, they just hold it down up there. I, I love them. I love Metatron. They're still doing their damn thing. I think you read, I read that you were a finalist for one of their... Yes, I was a finalist for one of their um, chapbook series. Uh, along, wow, I totally forgot about that. Nice, you're like the Nardwar of <laughs> the poetry world. Um, and yeah, I think they published a couple things by me on their blog too. So, Mimi Love, big fan. I remember. Oh, what is it called? Um, Ashley read a poem, "Agave Girl," I think it was called. I remember that very well. And Jay. I just thought of this. We had this long reading. Jay read, Ashley read, I read, and then you know a couple of the people read, and then we we're all just sitting around drinking. And I was like sitting around in the kitchen, like having some wine with Jay. And then one of the people from my MFA comes in the door, and they were like, "Oh my god, did I make it? Uh, you know, am I late?" And Jay just turns to me and goes, "Are they kidding?" Because it was like an hour after the reading uh, ended, and I thought that was really funny. So that's my memory of them. What about Mary Boo Anderson? Don't really know Mary Boo Anderson. I think I might have met them once in Chicago. Um, did, are they? Do they live in Chicago? They live in a. She lives in a California. California. Hmm. Well, I know. I have a lot of in New York, though. Okay. I feel like I might have met her before, but. I, I don't really remember. Damn, I'd have to really think. I don't remember. What about Maybe Zoe? Zoe of um, Blair. Yeah, Blair. Something, something confusing. Yeah, she came and read in um, Austin once. She came and she read, and Eleanor read, and I read, and I think E read, and one other person, and I thought they were totally a charming person. I would love to hang out with them again. She's like so sweet. And, uh, oh, she also published she published some things by me um, that uh, a lot of people uh, have brought up to me before, like a couple poems. And so I like how she pairs a lot of the stuff on um, her press, which is not blush. Is it called? No, tenderness lit. She pairs a lot of it with these really cool line drawings that she does. And so I like her kind of multi um uh, disciplinary approach and also she's like doing stand-up now which is like i want to do stand-up that's cool have you ever done stand-up no i would like to have i think it'd be fun slam yeah kind of i was thinking about a slam a lot today um i think 
I used to go to like a can tab lit in Boston, I think it was called or something like that. It was like a slam place, but like I have some pieces that probably could like survive in a slam setting. So I did a bit of that. It was kind of fun. I don't know. Slam poetry is like not my vibe, but at the same time, I don't want to disparage it. It seems cool. People have fun doing it. So yeah. what about Stephen Archery? I think his name is <laughs> yeah, Stephen Art. Yeah, he lives he lives in Boston. I still t- I talk to that guy sometimes. He's he's a hoot and a half. He came to a couple of the Boston readings. We have I can't even say we have a, a very um uh like god there's this one reading i don't even know if i should get into this but you know what this is like late in the episode and so it's like if you've listened this far you get all the good shit so we had this one reading in boston and um he uh i invited him along of course and he was like hey I, i i'm like reconnecting with this high school friend and like we're looking for something to do so i'm gonna bring him to your reading sounds cool sounds great so he shows up with this guy and um this guy he seems cool and steven like doesn't really know this guy but like used to know him and it's like whatever it's like fine but this guy gets uh really 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 drunk and he um like is sloppy drunk and that's fine too that happens but he started really making people uncomfortable he was trying to fuck everyone at this reading he was like my friend was pregnant. Um, one of my friends at this reading was pregnant and he was like making weird comments. It got to the point where we had to like grab him and we put him out, we bring him outside and we're like, we got to do something with this guy. And he's trying to crawl into his like Porsche or something. He has like really expensive car. This guy's like blackout drunk and we have to like rip him out of the driver's seat. And then he goes running down the street and Stephen Ark, I have this very vivid memory of Stephen Ark kind of like following him down the street, turning around to being like, I don't know what to do. And then like following him and we like wrangle this guy and he's just like, you know, having some sort of like interaction with some medication and some, and the alcohol, like something is going wrong with this fucking guy. He's like losing his mind. And so eventually we like get him in an Uber and we send him home and he throws up in the Uber and we all pay for it. And then, um, and then, he uh and then he his car was like in my uh, parking lot or in you know in my parking spot and i had to like get him to come get it the next day and then um yeah i think this guy like died a couple of years ago what you <laughs> yeah. died yeah oh yeah God. and steven arc just like one day reached out to me and was like hey remember that night while well, this guy died and i was like wow so r.i.p really weird night but that is my strongest one of my strongest memories with steven arc what about Ben Fama? Ben Fama has only recently come into my life because I got some poems published in Iterant magazine, and I think it's an issue that they guest edited. And so we've recently followed each other and um, seems like a cool person. I like having this person around. What about Joseph Parker? Okay. It was like Spy Kids Review. Wow. That's a name I haven't heard in a long time, Obi-Wan style. Um, yeah, I, I don't really know them, but it's just like an internet person. Uh, we probably interacted a fair amount. I wonder, what are they up to? Do you know? What is I he have doing? no idea. That's one of those people that has like completely disappeared off the map. Yeah, yeah. Spy Kids review. I forgot about that. I think it got published there twice. Did you like that, Mag? Yeah, I think so. It was kind of like keeping the ultimate dream alive. It was like kind of goofy and it was like whatever it was like 
kind of like irreverent and and silly but uh yeah i i, I had no problem you know if they publish me they got to be all right so <laughs> yeah so like do you see like a new generation of poets like coming up good question i wish i knew i feel like if i would had a, a better finger on the pulse i would understand that um the only like hot new hip new thing or whatever that i understand is like like weird like dime square new york reactionaries but i don't probably think they're writing very good poems so yeah i don't know i i guess is there like a weird diy internet poetry scene anymore you tell me sort of but i won't get into that now okay so <laughs> you perceive uh, it better than i do probably yeah so what else what else like other crazy things have happened at a reading crazy things that have happened at a reading well the stephen arc story is one of them um let's see uh um um i i, I have nothing prepared i would have to really think the problem is i've combined substances with reading so often that it makes the memories a little bit blurry but i have a lot of memories of like the uh kalamazoo reading is getting really insane by the end of the night um we we would do this thing where we would like do an open mic after the reading like we'd have the lineup and then anyone could sign up and the open mic had no maximum slots like whoever wanted to read could read and we would not cap it and so there were some nights where we would i would just remember being like 3 a.m and i'm like want to go to bed and there's like three more readers and there's like a guy and he's like reading a poem about a dragon and you're just like uh, my brain feels like mush. Um, but I can't think of like any other crazy stories um, from any of the particular readings. I probably will think of one right after I hang up with you, though. So how do you like go about organizing a reading? Um, I guess you get a roster together and you make a poster. And it used to be back when like Facebook was dominant. It was really nice because everyone, I mean, it was whatever probably evil and foul in many ways but facebook everyone was on there and so you could like do an event page and invite everybody and then it would just kind of snowball from there and it was like so useful i i, I really miss that there's not that sort of centralized functionality anymore of like facebook event pages so that used to be the way to do it um when we did a reading last year we did a big ufo reading and it was much more about reaching out to get as many artists involved as you could because then they would tell their friends you know and that can snowball in a specific way reaching out to local you know uh journalist sources or like uh, local papers and stuff and be like hey we're doing a reading can you like put it in your like events roster or whatever so that's like the most annoying aspect but all you have to do is just like get six people and get make a poster and get a microphone and like bring people into your house that is basically all it takes so why do you do you go have you written like essays or thought about writing fiction or nonfiction? i guess like poetry yeah. all, like encompasses all of that though yeah i've written some essays i've done a lot of book reviews um and i have a book review being published soon about um video game world building like a book review of a video game developer books so that's kind of new for me wow um but I've thought about writing essays. I've never really thought about writing fiction. 
I used to read a lot of short stories and kind of like what I initially wanted to be was a short story writer, but I guess, I don't know, maybe I've fallen out of love with the, um, with the, with the genre. Um, have you looked into I, boss fight books? Boss fight books. Yeah. Boss fight. They're the video game publisher, right? I have a few books by them. Yeah, I really they publish, like, like long nonfiction books about how like games were really created. Yeah, they, they have a really good, my favorite by them, I have a few by them, and my favorite is the Bible Adventures one, which is about this ragtag team of um, developers who were all atheists who were like, how can we cash in on the Jesus religious store craze of like the early 90s and late 80s? And so they made a first-person shooter where you were like Moses. <laughs> all right, so it's almost been 90 minutes. Do you, Are there any questions that you want me to ask you? And I want to ask you about your your music that you created oh i can't think of any questions you've asked uh, excellent questions you're a great interviewer and you've Thank just you. been peppering me with questions and i like that it's keeping me on my toes so like how do you how do you go about creating your music and how'd you get into that because like some of your music that i listened to it sounded like almost like mario kart theme music <laughs> thank you okay i like that yeah because that mario kart's got great music mario kart 8 excellent music excellent tunes um i think uh i don't know i just i've always wanted to make music and um it took me a long time to start to feel comfortable with um music is one of those things where you're just surrounded by so many people who are so brilliant at it or and all the people you listen to uh it's all so complex and you're like if you don't have any training and you're just kind of like diying it i don't know it just like took me a long time to like get any confidence about it but and if you listen to like my very first ep or whatever it's like so it's whatever it's not great but uh i like synthesizers i like the challenge of trying to write music it's a totally different writing muscle obviously there's some overlap with poetry but it's like a totally different like approach it feels like a totally new horizon and um i just like I'm, i guess i'm the type of person where like when i enjoy an art form i'm like i want to make that i want to like I, I play video games that like i want to make them i read poems i want to make them i listen to music i want to make it like i just want to do i always want to like i'm whenever i listen or hear anything i just want to like figure out how i could make it too so it's just part of that impulse well the last poems you published like had a musical uh, element to it like you like play it oh yeah kind of paired up with the poem Yes. Yeah. I thought that was really fun. I, you know, the iterant magazine, they asked for recordings of the um, poems uh, that they were going to publish. The, the, they published four of my UFO poems. And I was like, can I throw synths all over them? Because I'm sitting here next to a couple of synthesizers here. Whoa. And, uh, and you know, I got to use them for something, right? Yeah. And so it's just like an excuse to have fun. Was that <laughs> all of this is an excuse to have fun. Was that difficult? like write a poem and then pair it up with a, a musical no i did all of those in two days i was just wow. i knocked that out um but the ideas came really fast because i was just excited about it so i didn't find it particularly difficult i don't know, just like noodle around and then like scream into a microphone and you're like that's cool done <laughs> if you could design a spaceship how would you design it great question i think i like I really enjoy the classic saucer shape i think there's something really really alluring about the classic saucer shape but there's something interesting about the saucer shape. The very first flying saucers were seen by this man named Kenneth Arnold in the 19 late 1940s, early 1950s. He's like supposed to be like the first like 
modern day UFO sighting. And he's a pilot and he's flying and he sees these saucers and he, you know, goes on the news and whatever. It's like a big thing. But the interesting thing is the news messed it up. The news reported that he saw flying saucers. But when you actually go back and read his um, his, his eyewitness accounts, they're crescents. What he actually saw were flying crescents. Mm. But after the news published this stuff about flying saucers, people started seeing saucers. It's like the it's like the idea created a new reality where now people are seeing flying saucers. So I always think about that with the saucers, and um, I would I would probably design a really slick silvery saucer uh, with really beautiful multicolored lights undulating around it in an organic manner. Do you think there's aliens like underwater or are they like in the skies in space? I think they're neither. I think they're like peeking in through other dimensions. I think they're Whoa. like they're like fluttering it. They're like have some way of like connecting with their psyches and they like because there's like something psychical about the whole UFO thing. They like communicate with our minds and like our minds affect them and stuff. And so I think they're like fluttering in from like outside dimensions. I don't think it's a question of place. I think it's a question of like dimensionality so are the ships the aliens could be could be uh like but nope. i'm uh, yeah like in nope that's totally possible i mean sometimes people have been taken aboard crafts and they describe the craft as feeling like a living thing but also feeling mechanical it's very mysterious um so who's to say but sometimes ufos have been spotted underwater they're called usos unidentified submersible objects Like deep under water, like yeah, or, the Navy or UFOs, reported it. Yeah, yeah, or, or 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 you know, like they'll like show up on like weird um, radars, or 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 UFOs will disappear underwater, or they'll come out of the water. Like they totally do. do you think they're communicating with who? The deep ocean underground. I don't know. Could be. Could be. I mean, whatever. You know, the the ocean is like so terrifying. There's like so much of it. We have no. What if there's a civilization down there? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it's really scary. I yes, I, I should... think they're communicating with the oct oct uh, the octopus people. I think they're the octopus are going to uh, supplant us as the rulers of this planet. What do you think about the skulls? The crystal skulls are those like like Indiana Jones and they like alien skulls. I think the only thing I know about Crystal Skulls, have you ever watched the TV show Peep Show? No. It's like this British show, funny name, Peep Show. It's one of the best shows ever written, and there's a whole episode where one of the characters is dating a conspiracy theorist, and she believes in Crystal Skulls. I don't know anything about Crystal Skulls beyond that, and I've never seen the Crystal Skull Indiana Jones movie. Um, but if you were to ask me, do I believe in Crystal Skulls, I say Yes, they're powerful centers of healing. And that's what I now believe full heartedly. Do you think the the guy you wrote about in your poem like actually saw the 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 guy from like 1500s, the historical guy? Oh, Nostradamus? Yeah, do you think he saw like a spaceship? I don't know. It's hard to say. He's clean. He Nostradamus straight up was like a shitload of people saw these fucking spaceships like how do you take that is up to you, but the claims are there and there's a lot of that stuff throughout history. There's like the, the earliest UFO encounter that I have been able to find was um, from like 
the third century or fourth century or something, oh. St. Anthony the Great encountered what he called a great silver dish in the desert. And then he was like, this is the devil. And then it disappeared, which is so freaky. A great silver dish? That's a flying saucer. You're really sticking to like, not true on true. Like the, yes, the idea. Yes. Because I think it, it's imp it's like it exceeds that. Like I just think it exceeds that. It's it, it's not. It's like, but like verifiable reality itself is like an unstable category. I really think that. I think there's more to uh, our ability to create our own realities with our minds than we understand. And if that's the case, then it's beyond true and untrue. Like Isn't every poem. Like a famous documentarian that like sticks to that philosophy. Famous doc that takes sticks to the philosophy that like objective yep. reality is like there's like when he doc he makes a documentary and the people are like, Well, what's true and what's not true? And it's like whatever it's true to the viewer. Interesting. It sounds like Werner Herzog because yes, but it's that I, guy. Is, is that yeah, okay. I I, so. I don't know that particular quote, but it sounds like something you would say. And yeah, I mean, who's to say? I, I think it's all much more unstable than we really want to admit as far as, like, verifiable truth. It's like things can be com competing and conflicting things can be true, and that's when it gets complicated. And that's so sticks to poetry. And it's, it's poetry in a nutshell, baby. That's why it's yeah. the best art form, and all other art forms will fall away in the beautiful glorifying blue sheet of purifying light of poetry i think that i think that's a good ending right there <laughs> thank you that is a good ending i really appreciated this interview this is really fun no problem you've been an excellent guest one of the best well wow, thank you i hope i don't sound completely insane and uh if i insulted anyone i don't care i don't remember anything i just said so we'll see how it goes i'll probably edit the do part out so he doesn't like start going after <laughs> I don't me. care. You can okay. if you want. I really don't care. All right. Well, thanks, man. It's been awesome. Thank you. Good yeah, luck with your podcast. Thank you. Good luck with yours too. Yours is kicking ass. I can't wait to listen to more. I've just just listening to Carmen's earlier today. So I'm yeah, going she, back through the archives. Yeah, she made me really nervous because I guess I built her up in my head, you know. She's awesome. She's like yeah. seems so sweet. All right. Well, thanks. We'll see you later, man. Yeah. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Take it easy. Me too. Bye-bye. Bye. That was August Smith. Awesome guest. Thanks for listening, everyone. I will be back. I have two episodes right now in the podcast bay. And I got to edit. I love I love a good 90-minute episode. With someone I can just throw out questions to and bam, 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 bam. bam. I really want to get Eleanor Eli Moss on here. Formerly known as Evil Mountain. I think they would have uh, an excellent amount of uh, stories to talk about. And that is the episode. All right. We'll talk to you guys later. Bye. Boom, boom.